0: Healthcare resources in the highlands are very scarce. But about 50 years ago, God led the Church of the Nazarene to build a small hospital in the Wagi Valley, in the central part of the highlands, near a village called Kutu.
1: And that's where Joseph's family brought him. As they entered the front gates at the hospital, they didn't realize that every road on the station had been named by a missionary years before. The road that they were walking on was called Mercy Street.
0: So now for... About 50 years, the people of the Highlands have found mercy and healing for their bodies and for their spirits on Mercy Street.
1: In 2009, we moved into our brand new facility, a 130 bed hospital made out of cinder block instead of wood. We serve a, a huge hospital district of a quarter of a million people. For some people who live in the northern or southern parts of our district, it's a three-day journey just to get to the doors of our hospital.
0: Last year, we saw almost 60,000 patients. We admitted about 6,000 patients to our wards and about 1,600 babies. Just think about 1,600 babies for a minute. <laughs> kind of bottom you 1,600 <laughs> babies were born on our maternity ward.
1: We treat many of the same diseases that we see here in North America, high blood pressure, ulcers, depression, colds, flu, headaches, infections and strains and sprains. But we also see some things that are more common to the tropics like malaria and typhoid and tuberculosis and some things that are very prominent in Papua New Guinea, AIDS, tribal and domestic violence and road accidents.
0: But every day, lives are saved and souls are rescued on Mercy Street.
1: Mercy Street led Joseph to the doors of Nazarene Hospital.
0: I was the doctor that the nurses summoned to the emergency room that afternoon to see Joseph. His story was very suggestive of tuberculosis, but when I examined him, he seemed stable at the moment. So I ordered a chest x-ray and went on about some other work. It was a few hours before I got back to Joseph. In fact, the end of the day, almost time to turn things over to the doctor on call and go home for the evening. But when I saw Joseph at that time, it was clear that he was deteriorating rapidly. His breathing was more labored. His skin was pale. His blood pressure was falling. His pulse was rapid and weak. So I immediately looked at that chest x-ray. Now, I realize that most of you aren't experts on reading chest x-rays. Some of you might have some idea what you're seeing. The rest of you will just have to take my word for it that this x-ray shows some marks that are suggestive of tuberculosis. But my big worry was that big pear-shaped thing in the middle. Now, it's OK to have a pear-shaped thing in the middle of your chest. We're all supposed to have that. That's the heart. But it's not supposed to look this big. My concern was that the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, was filling with fluid. Now, it's common for patients with TB to have some fluid in their pericardium. And it usually doesn't really cause any trouble. And it resolves within a, a short time once they start on TB medicine. But this was dramatic.
1: There's a limit to how much this pericardium sac can stretch. When it reaches that limit, any further increase in the amount of fluid squeezes the heart. And at that point, the heart can't fill properly with blood between contractions. And so less is pumped out into the body, and the body is hungry for blood. If that fluid isn't removed, the patient will deteriorate and die.
0: Well, the first thing I did was to get the ultrasound machine to take an ultrasound scan of his chest to confirm that that was in fact what was going on. About the time I was doing that, Dr. Steph Donjus was finishing her work for the day in outpatient and she was the doctor who was on call for the evening and so she came over to the ER to check and see what was going on there. When she walked in, I said, hey Steph, have you ever done a pericardiocentesis? Now don't panic, that's just the name of the procedure for putting a needle into the pericardium and drawing the fluid out. Steph said, no, I've never done one, but I've seen it done a couple of times. Well, I said, you've got me beat, because I haven't seen it, and I've never done one. Maybe we should call Erin.
1: Well, Dr. Erin Meyer had just gotten home from a busy day at the hospital, and she was tired. She was sitting down with friends and getting ready to eat. When she got the call from the hospital for Mandy, the last thing she wanted to do was to go back to the hospital, But when she heard the story, she quickly said, I'll be right there.
0: Well, Erin came and examined the patient and agreed with our plan, with my plan. So she and Steph and I talked things over, and in the backward seeming logic of the missionary doctor, we agreed that since Erin had done a couple, Stephanie had seen a couple, and I had never done or seen one, I should be the one to do it this time. Can you imagine how you'd feel if you took one of your loved ones to your local hospital and found out they needed an emergency procedure done and that the uh, medical staff had held a quick meeting to determine who was the least experienced on the medical staff and have them do it. Well, in our situation, it obviously makes a great deal of sense. If one of us has more experience with a particular procedure than someone else and can, uh, the inexperienced person can gain some experience with the help of someone more experienced, because in a week or a month or a year, I probably will need to do one of to do a pericardiocentesis again and now I will have had it had some practice with Aaron's uh, help so that was the decision that I would do it
1: well it sounds like a simple matter this treatment that's
0: pericardiocentesis
1: you just stick a needle into the sack and pull out the bad stuff but remember you're putting a sharp object very near the heart and if it would nick the heart it could cause abnormal heart rhythms maybe fatal bleeding and as you take more and more of that fluid out, the sharp objects getting closer and closer to the heart.
0: So, with the appropriate fear trepidation, we scrubbed Joseph's chest with, with iodine. I injected a little bit of local anesthetic. Dr. Aaron used the ultrasound machine to give me a picture to provide some guidance as I inserted that needle in the pericardium. As soon as I did, there was an immediate flow of dark, ugly, bloody fluid. One of Joseph's relatives was standing nearby, now it's pretty common when patients come to our emergency room, that anywhere from three to thirty of their relatives come along. And they usually want to crowd around the bed all the time, but when we do a procedure like this, we usually ask all but one of them to leave. So Joseph's brother or cousin or somebody was uh, staying there with him, and I noticed that he was starting, he was tallying up how much fluid I was drawing out.
1: The textbooks say that you only have to remove a little bit of fluid, a few cc's, in order to improve the condition of the patient. But as Andy removed first 20 and then 40 cc's, there is no change in, in Joseph's condition. They all expressed surprise when he removed 100 cc's, then 200 cc's. Still no change in Joseph's condition. He was still struggling for every breath, and his pulse was weak and rapid.
0: Well finally when I got about 500 cc's out, we started seeing some change. Once the changes started, they were rapid. It's not very many times in in healthcare that you can see a patient who's truly critical, who's near death one moment, and within a period of a few minutes, see him basically normal again. But that's how it was with Joseph that afternoon. As I continued to draw out more of that fluid, his relatives continued to add up the total.
1: As it was clear that the patient was out of danger, everybody started to relax a little bit, and they even started to make jokes.
0: do doctors' joke, you
1: <laughs> They wondered if there was a category in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most fluid ever removed from a chest cavity, because if there was, they would surely win it. Because by the time the procedure was over, they'd removed 1,090 cc's over a quart of that bloody fluid from Joseph's chest.
0: Well, you know, Joseph found the help he needed that afternoon on Mercy Street. We admitted him to the ward and started him on TB medicines, but he improved rapidly and went home in just a few days. Dr. Aaron saw him back in the outpatient clinic a couple of weeks later, and he was the strong, vigorous young father and husband that God had intended him to be. Joseph was a Christian already when he came to Nazarene Hospital, but he found encouragement and strength in his walk with the Lord through the ministry of our chaplains and the ministry groups that come in from the local churches.
1: We have four chaplains at our hospital and every day each chaplain sees each patient and they sit on the edge of the bed and read scripture with the patient and pray with them. If that patient isn't a Christian, they explain the plan of salvation to them. Last year through the ministry of our chaplains, over 400 People came to Christ for the very first time. Yeah, praise the Lord. And we, we don't keep track of the people who have turned away from the Lord and come back through the ministry of our chaplains.
0: Chaplain Moses, the man you see there in the blue shirt, is a good friend. He sees himself as a chaplain to the missionaries. And when there's a difficult situation in our life, when a loved one dies, uh, he comes to pray with us and, and comfort and encourage. And when we're getting ready to come on home assignment, uh, he makes the time to come and pray with us and pray specifically for our home assignment. This time, he asked us for a copy of our speaking schedule so that he could pray specifically for each of our services. And so know that before this service, this is a big time difference, so it was probably wee hours of the morning, our time, Moses was praying for this service for us this morning. Diana knew that something was wrong. Diana knew that she'd been pregnant for only about six months, but now late that evening she began to feel some pains. They were vague at first, but gradually more distinct, and gradually came more regularly. It didn't take her long to recognize labor.
1: Diana knew that a baby being born too soon was a bad thing. There had been several ladies in the village who delivered babies at six and seven months, and those babies had died. But there was nothing she could do. It was dark, she couldn't get to the hospital. So there, by the light of her fire in her little grass hut, she delivered her little tiny, tiny baby. She must have been very frightened. The next morning, they came to the hospital and the nurses assessed the little one. He barely filled the palm of the nurse's hand. He weighed two pounds.
0: Well, that's really bad news in a small hospital like ours. It's, it's very rare for a baby that small to survive in a primitive rural hospital like ours.
1: The nurses knew that it was hopeless.
0: The doctors knew that it was hopeless.
1: Most everyone knew it was hopeless.
0: Apparently God was the only one (laughs) who didn't think it was hopeless.
1: Our usual procedure with these very small babies is to admit them to our little nursery, keep them warm, give them oxygen, start them on antibiotics and IV fluids. The ones that aren't too small sometimes will survive. For the others, we pray with the family and then we watch brokenhearted, as they take that little bundle back to the village for a funeral and
0: burial. When PNG, unnamed babies are known by their mom's name. So this was baby of Diana. He was admitted to the nursery. We placed an oxygen tube in his nose and turned on the warmer, started an IV, ordered some antibiotics, and waited for him to die.
1: And we waited.
0: And we waited.
1: But (laughs) the amazing thing was, baby of Diana didn't die. Every morning when Dr. Steph would go in the nursery, she'd look over at the little bassinet expecting to see it empty because he had passed away in the night. When she was working, an outpatient of a nurse came to her with a chart. She just knew... Probably baby of Diana was coding and the nurses were trying to do CPR.
0: But every morning there the stubborn little twerp was away. <laughs> you know all babies lose some weight in the first hours first days of life. The baby of Diana really didn't have much to spare. In the first few hours the little bit of sugar in the IV fluid is sufficient nutrition but before very long if you want these little guys to grow you got to feed them and he really wasn't up to meat and potatoes yet. So Dr. Steph put a little tube through his nose down into his stomach, and they began putting in small amounts of his mother's breast milk uh, every few hours. They increased it from day to day. Well, slowly at first, but then by leaps and bounds, baby of Diana began to grow.
1: We all knew about baby of Diana, everyone in the station, and many of us took time in our day to go by the little nursery and put our head in and say, how much does baby of Diana weigh today? 1.2 kilograms, then 1.5, 1.7. Finally, after about two months, baby of Diana reached the 2,000-gram mark. He looks chubby and fat there, doesn't he? That's the, t- that's the weight that Dr. Steph throws a party at. And she brings in punch and cookies, and they celebrate that the baby has made it to that weight. It's a great testimony to how faithful his mother is. She does most of the care of the baby and she's faithfully been feeding that baby with little eyedroppers and things like that. Um, with When the baby reached, reaches 2.3 kilograms, which is a little over four and a half pounds, and everything's going well, that baby can go home. And within a few days, baby of Diana reached that weight and so he was ready to go home. Here he is. They're just. This was taken just right before... Diana and her baby left and Stephanie had tears streaming down her face because she'd got grown attached and was praising the Lord for this outcome. So she sent this baby and his mama home to the village, not for a village burial, but to the loving arms of his family.
0: If you think for a second, it'll occur to you that the reason we're sharing this story is because it's exceptional. The hardest thing for me about practicing medicine in Papua New Guinea has been seeing babies die. Papua New Guinea has the highest infant mortality rate of any country in the Pacific and one of the highest in the world. The infant mortality rate is the percentage of babies who die before they reach one month of age. There are a lot of reasons for that, medical reasons, sociologic reasons, economic reasons. None of the reasons are very satisfying. And I ask myself, I ask God, why why should baby of Diana live? And why should baby of Mary and baby of Elizabeth die? And the answers I've come up with aren't very satisfying. I didn't really have much experience dealing with that in my practice in North America before I went to Papua New Guinea. When I got there, my first weekend on call, in a 48 hour period, there were three children that died. I was devastated. Just about packed up and went home. Now people are trying to to change it. At our hospital we're trying to do what we can to improve the situation and the National Department of Health and the other hospitals. Are making efforts to convince moms to come in for prenatal care and to have their babies at the hospital. And we're trying to do things to improve the mom's nutrition when they're pregnant, uh, to prevent malaria during pregnancy. All those things will contribute to helping more of these little ones survive. As difficult as it is most of the time, it's a real joy that once in a while we get to watch one of those little tiny miracles.
1: Well, sometimes an encounter with a patient starts out ordinary and then turns into something extraordinary and that's how it was with Daniel
0: well again I was the person that was summoned by the ER nurse to come and see Daniel nurse came to me an outpatient and waited in the hallway until she saw a patient leave one of the doctor's exam rooms and then I was that doctor so she flagged me down Handed me an x-ray of a broken arm and told me there was a patient to be seen in the emergency room. Went over to the ER and saw a young man sitting on the table with a laceration under his eye and a crude splint on his right arm. The story was that he had been attacked, had been beaten by someone using a piece of pipe or iron bar. Now when I was first in Papua New Guinea, I always wanted the juicy details of these stories. Who were you fighting with? Why did the fight come up? What were the issues? Was it over women? Was it over land? Was it over money? Was it over pigs? It's usually a combination of those things, often a combination of money and one of the other three. After a while, the stories kind of got boring. So this is so much the same. Besides, if you'd hear the other side of the story, you got a very different version.
1: Daniel had the odor of alcohol on his breath, and Andy wasn't sure if alcohol had been a factor in the fight or if Daniel had been drinking to deaden the pain. Whatever it was, his job wasn't to lecture or, or cause blame or find blame. His, his job was to sew up that eye and set the arm. There's a long line of, pa- of patients behind Daniel waiting to be seen.
0: Well, since the bones were rather badly out of alignment, I knew that I'd have to sedate Daniel in order to straighten the bones before putting on a cast. Now, sedating patients is sometimes an interesting process. Because we don't always make them completely unconscious. Uh, They're often able to talk. Their eyes are open, but their mental status is altered, and they don't remember the experience. Often their inhibitions are lowered significantly, so they may say things that would be they wouldn't say otherwise, things that might be funny or embarrassing. And whenever I share this, at this point of the talk, I see throughout the congregation A few people with this kind of embarrassed grin on their face, and maybe (laughs) nodding their head a little bit. So some of you know what I'm talking about from experience. And I'd love to hear the story of what it was you said (laughs) when you were sedated. So I prayed with Daniel briefly, as I usually do, and injected the sedative and started working. I wasn't surprised that he continued to talk to his family in the tribal language. And I assured them that he wouldn't remember what he was saying.
1: Well, Andy was surprised when Daniel turned to him and calmly said, I want you to pray for me, and I want to repent. Andy had never had a reaction or something like that happen with a patient under sedation, and he knew Daniel didn't really know what he was saying, and he really wouldn't remember it in the morning. But what do you do? As he was setting the arm, Andy prayed with Daniel and led him in a prayer of confession and repentance. And Daniel repeated it word for word.
0: Well, I finished the cast and put a couple stitches in that laceration under his eye, prescribed some medicines, and told the family to bring Daniel back in the morning for a follow-up x-ray. Well, the next morning, uh, the morning was getting on and I still hadn't seen Daniel. I was starting to get a little concerned because sometimes people don't come back for follow-up as we wish they would. And uh, I really wanted to follow up on this story. But there, finally, just before lunch was Daniel at my exam room door with his x-ray in his hand.
1: Andy invited him in and checked the x-ray to make sure the bones were still straight. And then he said to Daniel, Daniel, I have a question. But before he could go any further, Daniel interrupted him and said, yes. And he smiled and the family with him laughed. Andy, once he got over his surprise, said, well, Daniel, I'd still like to ask you this question. Is that all right? Daniel said yes.
0: Yesterday, you asked me to pray with you, yes, and you said you wanted to repent, yes, but you were drunk, yes, and I'd given you a bunch of medicine to make you sleepy, yes, do you remember any of that? Daniel, did you sincerely repent? Yes.
1: Daniel had more to say though. He said, when I got home, the brothers... The brothers,
0: <laughs> brothers is an interesting concept in G. Brothers can mean, well, brothers. It can mean uncles or nephews or cousins or just about anybody that you're pretty sure you're related to. You, don't, you may not know how you're related to them, but you're pretty sure they're part of your family, and they're roughly in your same age group. That's the brothers.
1: The brothers said they were talking about going to find the guys that had done this to me and beating them up. But I told them, no, I'm a Christian now, and I don't do things like that.
0: With PNG culture, that's a strong sign that a person has determined to follow Christ. He's saying, in essence, I have decided to put Christian values ahead of the values of my culture. You see, in Papua New Guinea, when something happens that upsets the balance of society, something has to be done to restore that balance. So if someone in your clan injures someone in my clan, someone from my clan has to injure someone from your clan. Or if someone from your clan kills a person of importance in my clan then someone from my clan must kill a person of equal importance or two or three people of less importance in your clan. Then you may not agree that the importance of the people that we've killed equals the importance of the person you killed, so you may still feel like you need to kill somebody else. I think it's easy for you to see how that can lead to ongoing cycles of violence and revenge that lasts not just years, not just decades, but sometimes for generations. For a Highlander like Daniel, to turn the other cheek is a strong sign of a deep spiritual change.
1: Andy didn't have to do much to lead Daniel to Christ. Obviously, there'd been some preparation work done before. Maybe a mother and a father who taught him about God. Surely a whole church full of people of aunts and uncles and friends and cousins who were loving him and praying for him. And a God who could speak to a young man's heart through the haze of alcohol, the haze of sedation, and still draw him to him. Whatever, it was a miracle, and Andy was happy to be a participant in it.
0: It was the wee hours of the morning when the baby came. It was their first baby. One of the dad's older sisters assisted with the delivery there in the bamboo hut by the firelight, high on the hillside above the Wagi Valley.
1: It was a lot of hard work for this first-time mom, and at times she just didn't think she could get through it. Finally, the baby was born, crying and kicking. As the auntie dried off the baby's body, everything looked perfect until she got to the baby's feet and they were twisted and deformed. Even as the baby was taking the first drink of breast milk, the family was talking, deciding what to do. They quickly came to the consensus that they would take the baby to Nazarene Hospital.
0: Just a few days before, I had come across a booklet on a desk in an office there at the hospital. I don't remember now what drew my attention to that booklet or why I had time to stand there and thumb through it, but I looked at it with faint interest. It was a booklet about the non-surgical treatment of clubfoot, a debilitating deformity, birth defect of the feet. Now I had known for some time that you could treat clubfoot by kind of bending and stretching the feet back into a sort of a normal position and putting plaster casts on to hold it in position and then repeating the process uh, every week or two until the feet got straighter. But this little booklet was saying that if you didn't do the stretching in a particular way and if you didn't correct the different parts of the defects, the different defects in the foot in the correct order, that you could do more harm than good. Well, I thought about the few babies that I tried to treat over the years and I really hoped that I hadn't done any harm.
1: When the family re- arrived at Nazarene Hospital the next morning with that hours old baby, there was nobody there with any special knowledge of club foot. As they came to the front of the line to see it, the next doctor, Andy was the one that called for the next patient. And I think that's a God coincidence. When he heard that the baby had been born in the village, his first, first uh, thing to do was to check the baby to make sure that she was healthy, and she was. She was strong newborn.
0: Well, when I saw those feet, my mind went back to that booklet. Now, have you ever had the experience when seeing your doctor of having him or her excuse himself or herself in the middle of the visit and leave the exam room? I'll bet you thought they had to go to the bathroom, didn't you? Yeah, no, that's not it. They went out and read up on whatever it was you just asked them about so they could come back and sound all wise and knowledgeable. Well, wanting to sound wise and knowledgeable, I excused myself and went and found that little red booklet. I read the... Section on the initial treatment of clubfoot and then I went back to the exam room led the family to our casting room Where I tried to stretch the feet in the way that the booklet had instructed and placed some casts And told them to come back in a week
1: Well when the family came back a week later Andy had read that booklet from start to finish start to finish start to finish several times and he'd also been on the internet to learn more about clubfoot He learned that until only a few years before, doctors believed that surgery was the only way to treat club foot. But that a doctor named Ignacio Ponsetti had realized that gradually stretching those abnormal ligaments provided a better result and function for the foot. And it was also better to use in third world settings. He had perfected his methods and his methods have been used all over the world with thousands of children.
0: So week after week this little baby returned for me to stretch her feet and put on new casts. One week when they were in, Judy happened to come by and the family met Judy. Uh, After getting acquainted with her a little bit, they decided to name this little baby Judy. So she's joined the ranks of the (laughs) little children in PNG who are baby Judy.
1: It's an honor to have a baby named after you. (laughs) Some of them are bigger
0: than babies now.
1: (laughs) Well, during the weeks that Andy was treating baby Judy, I was able, well, another baby came into outpatient with Clubfoot. And the doctor that saw that baby remembered Andy had been reading up on Clubfoot. And so she sent that little boy to Andy. Another baby came in and another, all within a period of a few weeks. And Andy realized he needed to set a certain time aside every week to see Clubfoot kids. So Thursday morning became his Clubfoot clinic also known as Dr. Andy's Foot Club. <laughs> and I've been able to go in and help him. It helps to have another pair of hands with those wiggly little legs. And I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed working with Andy, but also getting to know the families. Um, they become a club. These are our families that don't know each other. In a very tribal society, that's really new because <laughs> they come from so many different areas. And also in the village, it's not routine to do something every week. So it shows a great uh, caring for their children that they'll do that every week. And they've become a club. They cheer each other's babies on as those feet slowly, slowly change.
0: Well, as it turns out, the stretching and casting isn't all there is to it. Most of these kids need a simple operation to lengthen their Achilles tendon. And I had to learn to do that procedure by reading the description in the little book. So again, think of the scenario when you go to your local hospital and find that the least experienced member of the staff is going to do your procedure or your loved one's procedure. And then you find out that he learned how to do this procedure by reading about it in a little booklet that he found on somebody's desk a couple of weeks before. And it's your baby. And it's your baby. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, I did the procedure correctly. It is a pretty simple uh, procedure. And later, when I got formal instruction, I realized that I'd been doing it correctly all along. These kids also need splints. Once we're done with the casting, they need to wear the splint full time for about six weeks. And then they wear wear it at night and for a nap time in the afternoon and for as long as we can convince them to after that for a couple of years, if possible. The trouble is these splints that they are commercially made are expensive and very difficult to come by. They're really out of the realm of practicality for a situation like ours. So I designed a splint that I could make with plywood and baby shoes. And although it worked pretty well, I felt it was kind of primitive and crude, and I felt a little apologetic for it and thought that I'd still like to try to find a way to get the commercially made splints. When I went to the Ponsetti Clinic a few years ago, I saw that they have a collection there of splints from all over the world, made by doctors in third world countries, uh, improvised in various ways. And frankly, mine were so much better than any of those that... Uh, <laughs> that I'm no longer longer worried about it, I'm not apologetic, I'm no longer trying to get the commercially made splints, Uh, continue uh, making mine, I've refined the process a little bit, Uh, but it's working out very well. People donate uh, baby shoes, I have right now, I have a real good supply of uh, different kinds of baby shoes and uh, so it it works out well.
1: Over the next few months, Andy continued to learn as much as he could about clubfoot, and when we went on home assignment that spring, He was able to go to Iowa City to Dr. Ponsetti's clinic and get some hands-on experience. Dr. Ponsetti was 94 at the time.
0: It was a real privilege for me to get to work with someone who I consider uh, a real great uh, great mind in in medicine. He was no longer actively treating patients when I was there. He turned that over to some younger doctors, uh, but he still came into clinic uh, every morning. And uh, the little kids just loved him. I I don't know how he attracted them. had a very soft uh, voice and uh, spoke with a heavy Spanish accent. Uh, but the little kids uh, loved him and, and would uh, just flock to him. It was a particular privilege to meet him when I did because he passed away just a few months later at the age of 94. The patients have come and gone over the years. I've now treated over 60 children with clubfoot. And in a country where walking is very important, it's a, it's a great blessing to take a child who otherwise would have to learn to walk on twisted, deformed feet and allow them to walk normally. Many children have stuck with the process. Parents have brought them in faithfully week after week and they've completed treatment and gone on to normal function. And there are a few that live nearby and whose parents still bring them by once in a while so I can see how they're doing and it's really fun when I get to see them. Others have dropped out, didn't complete treatment. I I never really knew why, but I suspect that most of the time, once the feet start looking more normal, uh, the parents don't feel the strong need uh, to bring them. And I trust that most of those kids uh, at least got to the point uh, where they could could walk uh, with a fair degree of normalcy. Because walking is so important in PNG. Few families have cars. They walk almost everywhere they go. And sports are very important for children, especially boys. So to take a child who otherwise would have to walk on those twisted, deformed feet and be able to restore normal walking ability is a great, great blessing. For me personally, I have not found anything in medicine more rewarding than to see something like this turn into something like that. That's most fun that I've had in practice medicine. (laughs) I want you to meet my little friend Alfie. (laughs) (laughs) alfie 's the <laughs> thanks <laughs> alfie 's the oldest oldest patient that I have completed treatment on There have been a few older ones that i 've got started on um, but I want to point out something i 'll try to point out on both both screens. Um, see that dark area on the top of his foot on the side just the base of his ankle there and then on this side right there see those there 's some white white dust there that 's just dust from the last cast that i 've removed and uh, over here, I'm, I'm pointing to this dark area right here and right there, those are calluses. That's what Alfie had been walking on prior to treatment. Um, so I'm, I'm supporting Alfie there because his, we, his legs are so weak from being in cast so long. But as I'm holding him there, he is literally standing on the soles of his feet for the first time in his life. Um, (laughs) You you could tell (laughs) that it uh, it still moves me. Um, And as I was supporting him there, tears were streaming down my face. Judy was taking the picture with tears streaming down her face. His papa was standing nearby, balling his head off. Alfie, of course, thought we were all loony, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, how can you help us here on Mercy Street? The most important thing that you can do for us is pray for us. The face of darkness is very evident in Papua New Guinea. We'd ask that you pray for us, the missionaries and our families and our national workers and their families. Honestly, the daily parade that comes through the hospital of violence and tragedy is very exhausting physically and emotionally and spiritually. So we. Ask for your prayers that we would stand firm and strong in the Lord. And we'd ask that you would pray for our patients. The motto of our hospital is, We Treat, Jesus Heals. We can't heal everybody physically. People die every week at Nazarene Hospital. But we can offer them something much more valuable than physical healing and that spiritual healing and the hope of heaven. So please pray that each, each of our patients would be hear the message clearly. And be able to accept Christ as their Savior. We'd pray, or ask that you'd pray for our surrounding communities. Kind of the the old line: if if they're not happy, nobody's happy. And and what they can really affect the the work of the hospital. Um, and we ask that you'd pray that they would be supportive of our ministry. And we'd ask that you'd pray also for a revival for Papua New Guinea.
0: We also need to give. Come on, admit it. If a missionary came to your church and didn't talk about money, you'd think there was something wrong. And there would be. (laughs) We need your giving. Now, I know this is a church that has been very supportive of missions for a long time. So I know that to some extent I'm preaching to the choir. Um Perhaps there are a few here who might be new to the Church of the Nazarene and may not be familiar with the system that we use in the Nazarene Church for financing missions because it's different than in many churches and in many mission organizations. Rather than missionaries raising individual support, asking you to pledge money that you would send directly to us each month, um, the entire Church of the Nazarene all over the world raises money and that money flows through a fund called the World Evangelism Fund. Money from mission offerings at Thanksgiving and Easter go into the World Evangelism Fund. And churches that use faith promise giving. Do you guys use faith promise? The faith, your faith promise giving goes into that World Evangelism Fund. And it really is a worldwide thing. Churches all over the world, churches in Africa and Asia and South America, churches in Papua New Guinea, take those missionary offerings and give to the World Evangelism Fund. So, it's not just you giving to send the gospel to them. It's all of us giving to send the gospel to the world. It's the World Evangelism Fund that pays our salary. It's the World Evangelism Fund that buys the airplane tickets that allows us to go to PNG and to come back again, see our grandson. <laughs> it's the World Evangelism Fund that allows you, the Church of the Nazarene, to provide seven missionary doctors to Kujip Hospital. You want to meet him? What did I do with my pointer? <laughs> I put it away too soon. Uh, I'm guessing that you know this one on the uh, upper left. Uh, the second one there in the blue scrub suit is Dr. Jim Radcliffe. Uh, he's our surgeon, he's from Ohio, and he's the senior doctor in terms of years of service in PNG. He's been there about 28 years. Third there in the gray shirt is Dr. Uh, Scott uh, Dooley who's a family doctor from Kansas, and he's currently serving as our hospital administrator. He discovered, much to his surprise, he had no idea that he had any inclination toward administration uh, and discovered that he had a talent for it. And he's now uh, serving as a truly visionary leader at a crucial time in the history of Nazarene Hospital. Pray for him. Dr. Bill McCoy is a family doctor from Northern California. He's uh, second in seniority in terms of years of service He actually served in uh, the Nazarene Hospital in Swaziland for many years. He was the last uh, missionary uh, to leave uh, leave there and now has served in Papua New Guinea for about 18 years. Dr. Susan Myers is there on the left in the front row. She's a pediatrician from Ohio uh, and she serves as our director of medical services. That means that she directly supervises the work of our outpatient clinic and of our inpatient wards, that makes her my boss. Um, and she's a, a good boss. She's uh, doing a great job with that and uh, happy to serve with her. Second is Dr. Stephanie Donjes that we talked about, we mentioned a couple of our stories, she's a family doctor from Ohio. Third in the red is Dr. Erin Meyer who we also talked about in our stories and she's a family doctor from Pennsylvania. I want to tell you a little more about her because she's just a, kind of an exception uh, in some ways. Uh, She became a Nazarene missionary doctor by an unusual route. She went to medical school and residency, felt called of the Lord to be a missionary, had never heard of the Nazarene church. She attended mostly independent churches so on. Had never heard of the church of the Nazarene. Samaritan's Purse, whom I imagine many of you have heard of, an organization that does a lot of things, most of what they do is in support of existing missionary work around the world rather than doing primary work themselves. And one of the things they do is they support... Uh, young newly trained doctors who want to go to the mission field to gain experience someplace where they can work with experienced doctors in preparation for going out uh, as missionary physicians uh, later on. So she signed up for that program, applied to that program and so when she heard of Nazarene Hospital, that's the first time she'd ever heard of Nazarene anything. She came to Nazarene Hospital, did a great job and loved it there so much uh, in those, those two years that she wanted to stay longer. So she arranged to be able to stay on as a volunteer for an additional year. During that year, she loved it so much uh, that she decided that she wanted to stay permanently. Well, what's the best way to stay permanently as a missionary doctor at Nazarene Hospital? Become a Nazarene missionary. Well, as you know, you can't be a Nazarene missionary unless you're a Nazarene. So in one fell swoop, she joined the Church of the Nazarene, became a Nazarene missionary, (laughs) um, was accepted in absentia into the membership of a local church in New Mexico of all places, (laughs) um, and has continued serving with us there and is a wonderful addition. I also want to tell you about about Dr. Imelda Asaigo. She's the one on the right. Uh, She's not a missionary. She's a national doctor. She's a Papua New Guinean doctor, graduate of University of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea has a very small medical program. It's a country that should be graduating between 200 and 300 doctors a year to meet its own needs. They graduate 42 each year. Most of those have no desire to serve in the difficult rural areas where most of the people in PNG live, where most of the needs are. They want to serve in the, in the cities, in the limited specialties. They want to go to Australia to be trained as, as pathologists or as radiologists or as ophthalmologists and then come back and live in the cities of Papua New Guinea. Imelda is one of a small group of PNG doctors that have a vision, that have a heart, for service in the rural areas and there's now a training program to train doctors and prepare them to serve in those kinds of places so Dr. Melda would be called a resident in the United States she's a registrar there and this program assigns the registrars to all different hospitals and then they rotate around through the hospitals for particular uh, training experiences for particular rotations so she's with us most of the time and we're very proud of her she loves Jesus she loves her patients she works hard she's got a very high sense of responsibility uh, which makes it very easy to work with her and very easy to train her. Um, and we just know that we're going to see her go on to great service uh, in PNG, whether at Nazarene Hospital or someplace else. Uh, but it's a joy to get to be involved in, in her training.
1: So pray, give, go. We need some of you to come. We have recently been fortunate enough to receive some funding aid to build employee housing. So we need construction teams to come to help us.
0: And we, we hear by rumor that your church knows a little something about work and witness. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and now we won't, we, we won't lie to you. <laughs> it's expensive to get there. But we, all, we serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in every mine.
0: Trees in a million valleys. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, he's able to provide. And we'd just love to have you come. We also um, have, we teach our children on the station, our missionary kids. We have um, an elementary school and a high school, so we need two teachers every year to come and, and volunteer for a year to teach our students. This year we had one of our biggest graduating classes in several oh, years. Oh, there's a retired teacher. <laughs>
0: middle, <laughs> middle school. <Wow.
1: laughs> Last year we graduated two, so um, we don't have. Devastated a, the marching band, to lose those <laughs> two students. Yeah, it did, didn't it? So, uh, and it's a wonderful experience. So, retired teachers, new teachers, or teachers who take a sabbatical, it's a, it's a, a wonderful experience. We also, um, it, you know, sometimes we get volunteers who come for a month at a time and help with our maintenance, a month to a year. And Especially
0: maintenance, construction.
1: Yeah, that's kind of where we're at right have now. Heavy equipment. It's exciting. Heavy equipment yeah.
0: operating is a big need right now. Yeah. You could you could go tomorrow if you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, or also, maybe God's doing what he did to us. Uh, he called us into full-time career missions. We were happily settled in Washington State, and um, God called us from there with our teenagers. We went to Papua New Guinea. I know, I just know from the flavor, the nature of this church that... Anyone here who has a call to missions, you're supporting and loving them as they make that journey through obedience to God.
0: You know, sometimes children and teenagers are hesitant to share when they have a call. Sometimes you have to ask and do a little prying and, and, uh, and digging. But you might find that some of your teens and some of your children are already sensing God's call in their life. If that's the case, please support that. A study done in churches, in evangelical churches, asking people who have felt at some point in their life a call to missions but who never served as missionaries when asked for the reason that they didn't serve. The most common reasons given were something related to a lack of affirmation from the church. God, forgive us. And if one of your kids, one of your grandkids, one of your children, feels that call, please, please, Support it. Encourage it. Fan the little sparks into big flames. Because God's asked all of us to go. Not just the contracted missionaries. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, he gave it to the whole group. He didn't just pick out two or three. Now, some of those disciples, we don't know what role they had in the early evangelism of, of their world. We don't know if they actually traveled out and preached and planted churches or if they stayed in Jerusalem and raised support or, or what all of they did, but they all took on the responsibility together. And that command of Jesus that he gave us to go into all the world comes down to all of us. It applies to all of us equally. He calls some of us to go to our neighbors or our co-workers. He calls some of us to go across the street. He calls some of us to go across the country. But he calls some of us to go across international borders.
1: And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God's mercy is extended to others through us through his people. We are tools in the hands of God, extending mercy to those around us. And the people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea are finding mercy at the gates of Nazarene Hospital.
0: Well, everyone who has ever prayed for our work, everyone who's ever given to the World Evangelism Fund, everyone who's ever come and served side by side with us there at Kujip, is part of what God's doing on Mercy Street.
1: How about you? What's your address? Is John Day Church of the Nazarene on Mercy Street?